universe is weird. Hello and welcome to the podcast of a sleepless physicist, a podcast about science, academia and the people behind the studies. I'm Dan Bonser and on this first episode I'll be sitting down with my first guest to discuss something that is obviously on all of our minds right now. It seems impossible not to talk about COVID-19 at the moment, especially because both myself and my guest are obviously now in the lockdown which the UK has been under for the last couple of weeks. But with all the panic and misinformation about this pandemic going round at the moment, I thought it'd be very worthwhile to sit down and talk about what the virus actually is, what the real risks are, and how the NHS is being affected with someone who has a lot more insight into our healthcare system than I do which is where Meg comes in. Megan Richards is a final year adult nursing student at Keele University who has worked on several placements at the critical care unit of the Royal Stoke Hospital, the most recent of which she only completed earlier this year. She's now in the process of writing her dissertation. When she's not working towards her degree, she's working night shifts at a residential care home as a care worker. She's also a very good friend of mine who also happened to have been one of my housemates down at Keele University before the lockdown came into effect here in the UK. So with all the introductions taken care of, here's Meg. I don't really know how how you're supposed to start this. Um, which, to be fair, feels like a pretty good place to start. Hi, Beck. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good start, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm Megan. I'm a third year student nurse uh, from Keele University. And we're going to talk a little bit about the madness that is coronavirus at the minute and how it's affecting the NHS. little disclaimer, first off, is um, the, the, all these opinions of are my opinions. They're not the opinion of the university or the NHS, but I will be using some information that's come from them. Any information in the podcast has been sourced from reliable sources, for example, the World Health Organisation, NHS England and the Nursery Midwifery Council. So hopefully it should all be as up to date as we possibly can get. It's as as up to date as we're realistically going to get in these days. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, definitely. It'll undoubtedly have changed by the time we finish recording again. Who knows? Well, it's changing all the time. And, and, uh, yeah. I think that's why. Well, everything, that, everything that will be recorded will always be out of date when people listen to it. But oh yeah, yeah. Well, all information is correct at time of recording. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, Meg, my yeah. dear friend, an ex housemate, an ex housemate, <laughs> back in the the land when I was still at Keel. I am actually repping and wearing my only Keel University hoodie at the moment. Oh my god! Wow. I Where don't know why. Then? Yeah. Keel has made its, all, made its way all the way to uh, Yorkshire. Oh, I know, right? With my my, my oversized pink Keel hoodie. Wow. Um, I should have put mine on. <laughs> I mean, who's going to know? Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we, you could tell us that, but you could be not wearing it at all. Yeah, who knows? It's the the joy of an audio medium. It would make sense to just kind of go back to the start of this entire situation, really, wouldn't it? So. It would. Uh, like, what do we actually know about where this virus sprung up from and what kind of causes are the kind of main schools of thought right now as to where it's come from? Well, at the minute, they're still none the wiser, really. Um, they're all kind of researching into it still. Um, it was reported first in 
December 2019 in Wuhan, in, and they said that it was an unknown caused pneumonia. So they, they knew that it was pneumonia type symptoms, um, but they didn't know where it's come from. And they, they reported that to the World Health, Health, Health Organization. <laughs> um, and then on the tw- on, it didn't it was till January 2020 that they actually called it the novel coronavirus and not just this unknown pneumonia. And when I was looking at it in on the 22nd of March, there's been 288,000 cases in 185 countries. We passed the million mark, I think, yesterday, didn't we, for uh, confirmed cases? Quite possibly. So that, that, that just shows you how quick it's sped up in the last you know, weak. So they've been able to come from Wuhan. Um, the source hasn't been determined yet. Uh, I imagine there's lots of research going into that because that will obviously help with treatment. There is some kind of seafood, well, they thought that it was related to the seafood market in Wuhan City, but some of the confirmed patients that they were doing lab tests on never went anywhere near or in the vicinity of the seafood market. So I think that's kind of been ruled out now. I think that's where that bat's rumour come from. So there's always this rumour floating around that a Chinese person from Wuhan ate a bat. Um, but I don't, you know, we don't know if that's true or not. They're, they said that they are looking into um, sources that are animal related. So it could mean that they're looking into that rumour as well. The coronavirus has only been known to be in animals at the minute, um, before obviously this pandemic. And we know that it transfers to, from human to human by water droplets. So that could be indirect or direct contact with them. Um, it can be anything from sneezing and having respiratory secretions, um, which is a lovely word, or it can be blood, feces or urine. So Ooh. people think that it's just people coughing, but it could be any of those things. So if you come into contact with any type of water from a human with coronavirus, the, well. the thing at the minute is people aren't sure where it comes from. We never found in humans before this all started in December, but... Here we are. (laughs) Yeah, it was on um, BBC News yesterday. Well, yesterday being the 2nd of April. It broke the million mark. Like, as in, like, global confirmed cases broke the million mark yesterday. That's Um, so scary. Because, so I looked at that on the 22nd of March. As as all things do, this this took time. (laughs) We started researching it a while ago. Oh, yeah. But, so in just, so, yeah, so in just under two weeks, it's gone from, say, 300,000 cases to just over a million. So you can tell that it's obviously sped up significantly in the last two weeks because it took three months to get to that 300,000 mark. And then yeah. in two weeks, we've doubled that um, in excess as well, haven't we? So. Well, it's a exponential thing, isn't it? So like as soon as you reach yeah. reach that point and it's all of a sudden just going to have a massive uptick, has apparently. Yeah. yeah. And I think the thing at the minute is there's a lot of people, because obviously we'll talk a little bit more about the lockdown, kind of lockdown situation in the UK, but... There's a lot of people now that are seeing the death rate of coronavirus in the UK going up um, and wondering, like, is the lockdown making any difference? But obviously that flattening of the curve that everyone keeps talking about will take a while to take hold because all of these people that have contracted the virus before lockdown will still be in the incubation period for coronavirus. So we've got to wait at least Mm. two weeks to even see any change. But significant change, I'd say probably a lot longer than that. I think it's a bit worrying that people are uh, thinking that this lockdown isn't working because I think that that leads to people ignoring the advice of the government. At least I'm going to tell that one, I suppose. I was about to ask you, actually, because obviously we are in lockdown now for the last like week and a half or so at this point. Yeah. I was like about to ask you whether you think that it's working and how concerned we should all kind of as a society be right now. Well, yeah, in theory, this lockdown should work. 
I know I speak to my mum and dad, who obviously have followed me being a student nurse for a while and are quite in the know with kind of infections and that kind of thing. Uh, my mum works in a supermarket, dad works a, as a driver, and even he said that he's got to have the full 12 weeks off, but my mum goes back to work next week. And she says, if, yes, we're in lockdown and this, you know, but she's still got to go to work, she's a key worker. So she said, but well, I, can, I could pick it up from anyone in that shop and take it back to the house. But what I was trying to explain is she could take it back to the house, but she's not taking it anywhere else. Like, it would be very unfortunate if your dad did get it, but it's never going to spread past that point. So you're not going to pass it on to however many people that yeah, you go sure. and see on a regular basis. So I was watching something and it said that if someone had flu in a room, it'd be likely to infect 1.4 people for every person that has flu. And this was it. Professor Hugh Montgomery was talking about this. He's an ICU specialist. It was a Channel 4 News thing, wasn't it, I think? I think so, yeah. Was I think it was a Channel 4 News. Like, it was part of a documentary, I imagine. If you times up by 10, obviously it's 14 cases. So I would be responsible for 14 cases. Whereas with coronavirus, for every person that's got coronavirus, three people are infected, which doesn't seem like a lot. And then he said in this video that that adds up to 59,000 people. Yeah, well, that's where the, the whole like exponential nature of everything comes in, isn't it? Because yeah. you're doing 1.4, and then after you've done like 10 layers of that infection, you're looking at yeah. one, it's 1.4 to the 10th power of people, yeah. which is the 14. But then, yeah. yeah, like three to the 10 is, yeah, it's just over 59,000 cases. Yeah. And I think people don't, that's what people don't get is there's a lot of people that say that they aren't concerned about getting it themselves, but that's not the issue that we're looking at is the fact that, yes, you might get it yourself and you might be fit and healthy and young, which, as we've seen for the past few days, isn't necessarily mean to get through coronavirus. It could be that you die from it. I think the most, the youngest person in the UK was 13 um, that died from it, so you know that that doesn't mean that you're not you're going to be all right but a lot of young people have got the mindset of i'm going to be okay but the fifty nine thousand people that you give it to that you're responsible for giving it to if you we weren't doing this lockdown situation might not be okay and it's yeah. probably you know it's probably um in the thousands of people that will die from it from that well so even... like, it, it breaks oh, the chain don't you, of people that you're passing it on to yeah, of course. Because even if it's a mortality rate, I think it's hovering around three or four percent at the moment. Three or four percent of fifty-nine thousand people is still thousands of people that has yeah. come from yeah. one. That could die from case. it. At the minute, like, how concerned should we be? You know, there is people that have very mild symptoms um, that come through at the other way, the other end completely fine. There's a vast majority of people that have coronavirus at the minute are at home with a continuous cough or a high temperature in this sense of the symptoms it's very very similar to flu it produces more mucus in your system so you know that's why you're getting the cough and the high temperature trying to fight it off but you know for that small percentage of people that end up in hospital it's the capacity of the icu and the beds and the ventilators which are the problem 111 have been saying that that's the kind of call in service for advice if you can't manage your symptoms at home to obviously call them if you feel like you've got any chest tightness or you're really short of breath. They said it's like you feel hungry for air, which is the best way of explaining it, I think. So it just feels like you can't get enough air in. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously why people are admitted to ITU purely to get their oxygen levels back up to normal. Right. And it can then lead into, for example, multi-organ failure and that kind of thing, as low oxygen in your body can do in lots of different diseases, not just coronavirus. The only advice I could find, actually, online, as in not any in, in hospital policies, antibiotics won't help because it's a virus. I thought it was quite well known, but <laughs> it was on there anyway. <laughs> and the only thing we can really do is pain relief, paracetamol to help with fever, 
um, so bring your temperature down and then obviously any oxygen requirements that people need is kind of where we're at that's like the three-pronged attack to deal with coronavirus but it is just a matter of it burning itself out that's the worrying part yeah that kind of leads on quite nicely because you've mentioned the whole flattening the curve concept and you've mentioned what actual effect each case has on the nhs in terms of nursing and treatment options that kind of thing i was just wondering obviously all of us are social distancing some of us not by choice anymore how is the nhs coping as a as a system right now and what are the best things that everyone can do to help to ease that load well from my point of view i haven't actually looked after anyone with coronavirus yet because at the minute we're we're supposed to be on placement now but we've been told we can't go on placement at the minute while they sort out kind of the logistics of it and the legal side of sending students into frontline coronavirus care which is where we'll i'll be in about two weeks time at the minute they've asked around eighteen thousand people um their student nurses to help on the front line so that'd be kind of a and e critical care um your respiratory wards and things like that in the local area so from in staffordshire i think about 350 have opted in to do that so we'll be paid for it we're, we're not told how much we will be paid at all we don't know you know if it even will be a thing i think that's down to the actual trust and where you live we've got this option of a six-month placement which will be different to any placement we've had before because we normally have this um supernumerary status so it means that we're not counting the numbers and we haven't got our own patients per se we will look after our own patients but under the guidance of an earth whereas that status of being out of the numbers and not actually being counted as a member of staff on that shift we haven't been guaranteed that from the university now so we could go in and be you know helping where we need to help um which is fine you know th- th- there's a lot of times where that supernumerary status is blurred anyway because they need help on the wards short staffing isn't a, a new thing because right. of coronavirus it's been around for a long time so with a supernumerary status say i was working on a ward i don't have to stay on that ward all day because i'm not counted as staff so if i was thought that i needed to go into theatre for example to see something that's going on in there i can move between and quite be quite free to do that whereas you know with this placement now we won't we won't have that kind of freedom to move about we will be more so counted in the numbers yeah but yeah the logistics of how we're going to be put into the nhs the nmc have given out emergency standards which anyone can view online if they're interested <laughs> i wouldn't say it was a thrilling read for people that <laughs> for people that aren't it doesn't affect um you know directly but now all the universities are basically reading those standards and taking their own spin on it really um, working with the standards to make sure that we're protected and the nhs are aware of what we can and can't do and and things like that at the minute some of the things are trying to iron out are if students will be in high risk areas which i think is going to have to be inevitable because the high risk areas will be the busier areas um yeah and they're also trying to figure out kind of what our responsibility would be because as we're not qualified yet we need a kind of middle ground between yes we are more educated in terms of how to look after coronavirus patients than you know your average person but we're also not qualified and haven't got that complete degree behind us yet so and I think there's a, there's a lot of anxiety in the students around student nurses. We've got a Facebook chat at the minute that's constantly going off with people asking questions and just worrying about what the future holds. I suppose. Yeah, of course. For us. Seeing as you won't have your complete degree behind you yet either, would that have any effect on your protection in terms of the legal side of things as well? Yeah, I think so. So at the minute, we're technically under the care of the university. 
we aren't registered with the Nathan Midwifery Council yet. They're aware of his, our existence. They are kind of they're responsible for students as well. But until you've got that registration behind you, it's not as I'm aware. It's not really the NHS's responsibility. They've got they've got a responsibility to kind of look after your students like you would your staff. But we're kind of in a grey area of we're still part of the university, but we're just, you know we are always in the NHS and they do have a responsibility for us as well. So it's yeah. I think that's something they do worry about because obviously we will be working as kind of staff for the NHS and if we're, if we're being paid, does that then make us have the same rights in the, in the, in the NHS's eyes as people that work there full time? So yeah. it, 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 it blares loads of lines that even talking about it now is confusing me. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, just, like, I can't imagine so the many... that are trying to... Yeah, because like when I was reading it, and obviously I knew a bit more about it, paid volunteers is a weird concept anyway because like yeah we are we would be there if we weren't being paid anyway like it's still part of a course loads of people have said that i'd still sign up if i wasn't getting paid and i I did that opted in straight away didn't consider that i wasn't going to get paid i just thought i'm just going to imagine i'm not going to and then anything's a bonus we get emails like at least two or three a day from different lecturers who are all trying to work it all out and figure out how they can best protect us basically and they're working very closely with the with the NHS to do that as well. And obviously the Vice Chancellor from Kiel has been working with them as well. So it's just something that's going to take a while to kind of get started. And I suppose it's frustrating for us because we want to get out there. <laughs> the nature of the job, we want to get out there and help people. And Yeah, know, of course. It's, uh, it is frustrating, but I can imagine it's massively more frustrating for the people that have got to sit with that guy that's in front of, the, front of them and figure out how they're going to look after 350 students that are yeah. due to go out. So. Like we both know that Stoke Hospital, which is where our uni is, has yeah. a specialist infective diseases unit. Yeah, it does. Yeah. What kind of effect does that have on the strain of the Royal Stoke specifically? I think it helps definitely because I know there's quite a few trusts that haven't got that luxury, I suppose, of having an infectious diseases ward. I haven't noticed on that one myself, but on a typical ward, it normally can house about thirty-two patients. So in the local area you can imagine there's probably a lot more than 32 people that have got the virus so it's it helps and it does definitely use a strain i imagine that that was the first protocol i know when we first had the two confirmed cases they were just taken straight to the infectious diseases board but also in the local area our hospital is one of the few trauma centers in the country okay. so we also get everything from you know we can get anywhere up to wales so wales oh. so someone could get ran over in wales have a massive hemorrhage and be flown over to us so i think in t- that respect we've it's a really really busy hospital anyway um yeah. so just be an added strain on top but i suppose in a way that you know they're used to dealing with being quite busy it's quite it's quite a big hospital you know the, the trauma centers are really kind of fast acting um because they have to be so i suppose that that's a that's a, a benefit and a you know, and a limitation, really. I think the main thing to help the NHS that we can do as people that are staying at home is to stay at home and only venture out when they really need to. Me and my housemates have been saying that we're going to go to the shop. We're going to try and go less than once a week. Yeah. You know, we're only going to try and go once a week. If we can make it stretch a few more days, we make it stretch. Um, which has been... <laughs> it's been a... Getting used to that has been a bit of an adjustment, as Dan knows, because we used to live live together. Yeah, back um, in the day. 
We, we do have the, quite the chocolate um, addiction in this household. Spreading <laughs> spreading chocolate rations over a week has been quite difficult. But we just <laughs> that's been the main thing. We've got a lot of toilet roll, just not a lot of chocolate. But yeah, so we, obviously the advice is to wash your hands at least for at least twenty seconds more often than you normally would. So when we've been going out, we've been washing hands before we leave. I think that's the one that always people forget is if you've got the virus or you're unawares, you know, young people can have it and not even know they've got it. It's to make sure that you're protecting the people who are there who are over 80 and maybe frail and things who it's more likely to be a lot more severe for them. So it's washing your hands before you leave your house as well as washing them when you come back. Yeah, yeah. it's just kind of realising all of the tiny little things which you just do automatically and having to catch yourself all the time. Yeah. I imagine that's yeah, the thing definitely. that a lot of people are finding quite tricky. Yeah. I touch my face constantly and like even yeah. just like while we've been talking, I've scratched my eyebrow and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's just all the little, the little bits of extra effort which is just like really important right now. Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of a running joke amongst nurses that as soon as you put your gloves on, you've got an itchy face. <laughs> and it's so true because, like, when you know you can't do anything, you're just so much more hyper-aware of it. The amount of times I've put gloves on and been in the middle of a procedure and had an itchy eyebrow oh, is ridiculous. Yeah. But you kind of just have to check in with yourself, which it is difficult. But yeah, absolutely. it's still a, an adjustment period for people. It is a massive cultural shift just anyway. This kind of, like, lockdown scenario that we're in at the moment, no one in living memory realistically is ever gonna have experienced this kind of thing before no that's it a lot of people are making comparisons back to like the second world war and stuff even even like the height of the blitz wasn't wasn't this level of shutdown no no it's it's unprecedented completely yeah it is and i think that is it is worrying people and i think there's a lot of scaremongering that goes on anyway surrounding the nhs you know you you always hear the bad stories first which is very true you know there's things circulating on facebook and things and other social medias that like people who are 85 who've had past medical history of all kinds of things strokes broken hips have recovered from coronavirus and that's the kind of positive stuff that you won't get through media because that's just not how it works yeah um make the headlines because it it is you know it is scary as a student nurse who will be chucked in at the deep end i imagine um right on the front line (laughs) it it is scary but there's a reasonable amount of anxiety you can have around it without tipping it over the edge and being you know completely inconsolable and and i think that's not what they, they, they don't understand that when they're spreading this kind of scaremongering around yeah and like there there's a very fine line between like a reasonable amount of concern and then there's like stories that come out which slowly shift it to just panic about everything and it's just yeah. like not helpful yeah definitely definitely so at the minute the advice is to, if you suspect that you've got coronavirus to stay at home self-isolate completely for 14 days if you can't deal with your symptoms yourself that's when you'll be ringing 111 if it's not serious or 999 if you can't breathe and it's getting to that point where yeah. you feel like you need hospital admission you know and obviously any, any service is going to be ridiculously busy at the minute but it is just the fact of looking out for those red flags yourself and making the staff on the other end of the phone aware of those red flags before they turn up and there's been pictures on Facebook again, scaremongering, of how the how the paramedics will arrive with everything covered and things like that. And they probably will. I haven't seen the paramedics out and about, but I can imagine that is what they will look like. They will 
be covered from head to toe in some kind of PPE. They'll have the mask on and their eyes covered. But I don't think it's necessary to kind of post that all over Facebook and scare people into thinking that yeah. for some because they've got a mask on, the paramedics are now scary. And it, it's just necessary. And even if, you know, just imagine that even if you haven't got coronavirus, if it's suspected, they've got to just do what they can do to try and prevent that from spreading anywhere else. So yeah. I can imagine making that phone call and having the paramedics rattle like that is very scary, to put it yeah. lightly. Well, but then they're still there to do the exact same job. They're yeah, not... yeah. How they're going to treat you is not going to change. Yeah, absolutely. At all. Anyone with infectious disease that I've worked with, you have to put your all your aprons, your gloves on, and everything outside the room and go in. It it does take a little bit more time, but completely no bias between how many times you go into that room. We go into that room as much as we go into other people. You know, we'll give medications at exactly the same time as other people. It's just that step in between and. I think people are scared that they're going to be shoved up a corner somewhere and left. But that's not going to happen because you've still got exactly the same duty of care to patients with suspected or confirmed coronavirus that you have with people that haven't got infectious diseases. So yeah, cool. I don't think the scaremongering helps. <laughs> no. um, I'm quite hopeful. I don't think that, it, obviously, it's my personal opinion now, I don't think that it's something they can't cope with. Um, I've seen them cope with things that weren't as bad or as contagious, but they've coped with them completely fine yeah and and coped well with them so i can't imagine yeah there's a bit more stress around this and you know it's more contagious than the flu but if we're doing all the things that we should be doing for flu anyway hopefully if we're doing all that stuff right just changing the what we're wearing is not going to impede that at all is it so yeah hopefully we'll do the same processes and the same processes will work for this new virus that we always have I've heard from different nurses who are doing ridiculous amounts of shifts and just trying to do everything they can to help, um, which is lovely. And obviously retired nurses and doctors are coming back. They've been asked to join the register again after retiring. Um, or people that have just been out of nursing for a bit or medicine for a bit have been asked to come back to help. And a, a lot of people have done that. There's been volunteers. Obviously, the, the volunteer programme they put out, they wanted 500,000 people. And I think now it's gone up to... No, they wanted 250,000 people, sorry. And now it's gone up to 750,000 people. Oh, God. So, yeah, so that's amazing. Just volunteers to do things like take medications, take people shopping, that kind of thing. Yeah, of course. But obviously only do that if you feel fit and well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look look after yourself first. (laughs) Coronavirus wouldn't be very helpful. As you were talking about, obviously, what the actual like processes are for taking care of all these cases in the hospital and things like that, obviously, yeah. what the ideal thing to come out of all this is, is some form of vaccine or preventative treatment that yeah. would hopefully, obviously, drop this all down to a lot more manageable levels really, really quickly. Um, yeah. Do we have any kind of indication what the situation is in terms of the scientists working on vaccines and things like that? Obviously, a vaccine would be ideal. As we know from other illnesses that have needed vaccines and things, they do take a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not something they can do overnight, but they've actually started a kind of a different way of approaching it this time. I don't know if this is kind of in the works anyway, but this has forced the hand a little bit. Modern therapeutics or Moderna therapeutics have started basically using the virus in a different way to try and make the vaccine. So they've been using the mRNA, which is um, a protein, which obviously makes proteins from uh, your DNA. Um, And they've been using the virus's mRNA to speed up that process. So they're going to use that in the vaccine rather than 
replicate the virus to make the vaccine. Oh, um, really? From what they've said, this okay. could be the future of making vaccines. This could be a lot quicker to do. Um, yeah. And it means that actually the vaccines can be mass produced a lot quicker as well, which is obviously awesome. vital in this, in this at the moment because of how quick the virus is spreading. They've also said that a drug that was used in, this was from the, the Guardian and, and Time, this was that a drug used in Ebola, which is an antiviral drug, can go some way to treating coronavirus. It's not really a treatment, but it helps to slow down the virus in the body. So yeah. there's actual clinical trials going on that at the minute. So um, I think they were taking 10 people. They were half the group of people they had, and they were giving one group the Ebola drug and seeing if it actually has an effect on how the disease progresses, how the virus progresses, and how quickly it does it, and what symptoms people get. So that's kind of in the works as well. Brilliant. It just basically, yeah, so it says that it tries to slow down, it'll slow down the virus. Obviously, they'll still need some treatment afterwards yeah, to kind of, of direct work on the virus, but I thought it was quite interesting. It's nice to know that they're looking into that and they think they're trying to kind of consolidate the, the knowledge from that as well. Yeah, like even if that so, just yeah. goes into the whole concept of flattening the curve, if it's delaying the onset of serious symptoms... Yeah, Obviously, yeah. that'll give the healthcare system as a whole a lot more time to boost itself back up to the point that it'll be able to deal with that kind of influx after that yeah. drug has helped. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, they, they've said that obviously that, that was their idea with the kind of flattening the curve thing. They said that already, and there is a video on there, it's quite a video to be fair, it helped me understand the vaccine, which, as I'll, I'll put out there, is not a strong point of mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, um, the people that make these vaccines are a lot cleverer than me. <laughs> Probably have been at university for a lot longer than me too. You know, it, it is quite easy to watch um, on their website. So um, basically, they've said that they've managed to do it at an unprecedented time. Uh, basically, in mid-January, they were given the virus to kind of try and get some kind of um, a batch of vaccines out. And they managed to actually get a first batch for like clinical study within the labs, not on people. Right within 42 days oh so nice. yeah so it was massive so that they said that that's like ridiculously speedy for vaccines and then they said in february they were looking at a time scale of a clinical study within three months so february march April. so kind of yeah yeah so kind of looking at doing that in the next couple now of weeks by the sound of it yeah yeah so obviously that is all dependent on if the vaccine works for a start and <laughs> yeah that'd be a good start works. but you know it, it's it's nice to know that this has been in the works for already three months. Yeah. Uh, it's not like it's you know suddenly we've we've reached this reached this like peak time and and we're only just starting. It's it, this has been in the works for a long time already. I think it is it is imminent in fact of we'll hear more about it. But how quick they can replicate them and get them out to people is obviously a different thing. Yeah, that's just that's really just a question of capacity more than anything at that point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think. To be honest, I think I'm thinking of it as there's going to be a lot of recognition for this for what because obviously a lot of them are private companies. Oh yeah. There's going to be a lot of financial and recognition for the person or people that make this vaccine, um, yeah. and we'll be able to sell it on Definitely. to everyone in the world. So um, I imagine that's quite a big incentive to, yeah. to get it <laughs> to get it out there and and working and quick. Bowler now seems like it was over quite quickly but i bet you know at, at the time when people were living through ebola that they thought they'd never sort that but you know yeah and then one of those things, i suppose it's uh, 
just a waiting game. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're going to get through it. This yeah, isn't, yeah. It's going to be a while, obviously. And there's a yeah. part that everyone's going to have to play for a considerable amount of time. And it'll be fine. It will. It will. It's, you know, it's not the first that's ever happened. Obviously, we had SARS and um, MERS, 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 I suppose. MERS. <laughs> MERS. But yeah, um, <laughs> so obviously, there has been similar viruses that have been contracted in humans. So, yeah. you know, I don't know how similar they are in terms of genetics. Like I say, genetics is not the strongest uh, subject. There's been similar viruses around. We've already got the, the facility in place in the, in the hospital to deal with infectious diseases we knew that there's going to constantly be viruses either new viruses appearing like this one or viruses manifesting themselves in different ways and changing so as a healthcare system you've got to kind of plan for the unplannable as the days go on the more scientists know about how it's caused where it's come from the better we'll be able to treat it and the more we'll know about it yeah absolutely Uh, a vaccine will happen it's just when but i think at the minute we can, as the lockdown is trying to do, we've got to kind of create a buffer. We know that a vaccine's coming. We know that we've got the best scientists in the world all fighting, basically fighting each other. They are working with each other, but I suppose there is some kind of... There's 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 a healthy sense of, of, of competitiveness, as there always is, in, yeah. in this kind of thing. And the thing is, I'm quite okay with that. <laughs> if, if they want to compete over it, how quick they can get them out or how effective their, their vaccine will be, then... That's absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> if that's going to scare him off. <laughs> but in the meantime, stay at home, wash your hands. <laughs> Don't go out the house unless you really need to. Even if you're really craving chocolate at 3 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> like it's I just, have it's just not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth the chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> just, just go to bed. Yeah, that's it. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just sleep it off. <laughs> in the morning, you might not want chocolate. It's fine. <laughs> but no, we, we did a weekly shop. Um, yesterday actually and we, we'd just gone over it we i think we've done about nine days without do before we did the after Ooh. we did the lab so nine days it'd been a it'd been a stretch yeah <laughs> so um we went out and the, the first thing on my housemates list was it uh, can i have some chocolate please yeah <laughs> I haven't had chocolate in nine days. <laughs> yeah that sounds about right <laughs> i think we're all gonna have to cope with it in our own way and i think yeah coping with it and, and laughing about being in lockdown and the stupid videos on facebook is a bit of a distraction for people that <laughs> you know, are actually really anxious about it. Just think about the people that you haven't spoke to for a bit. And, uh, you know, I've got a friend in Leeds who is uh, on her own completely. Everyone moved out before the lockdown had, <clears throat> had uh, commenced. So um, she's completely on her own. So it's just thinking about the people that you might not have spoke to for a bit. Reach out to them, give them a ring. We've been doing games nights and stuff and, you know, play some online games I don't know. Sit, both sit and have a and have a beer together through through the power of the internet. But oh. it's like reach out to the people that might be on their own and check in with them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that sounds like a pretty great note to end on to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's if, it. If, or do a podcast with your friends. You. <laughs> yeah, make a podcast with your friends. That is the the ultimate advice. Thanks very much for coming on the first <laughs> episode. It's all right. It's all right. No worries. It was just a nice chat, wasn't it? Don't worry about me. 
If you'd like to read more about this ever-changing situation, you can find all of the links that we referenced in the interview in the show notes. If you'd like to hear more interesting discussions from all corners of the scientific spectrum, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you happen to be listening to it. Thank you to Hank Green and the Perfect Strangers for the use of their song The Universe is Weird as the intro and outro of this podcast. Meg's theme was Don't Worry About Me by Francis. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DSponsor and you can follow the podcast on Facebook by searching Podcast of a Sleepless Physicist. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. With that, I'll sign off.